when I had entered into my graduate program, I was told that it was a waste of time to do like computer science and programming, that I would never be respected if all I did was like build tools or build libraries or, um, you know, write code to solve science problems. How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. On this episode, we have a very special guest, Paige Bailey, the lead product manager for generative models at Google DeepMind. And at such an exciting time, this week uh, was Google I.O., where they got to announce new advancements for Google Bard, talk about Gemini, and how they're incorporating many aspects of generative models into uh, all of their products, really. Um, Paige, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to have you. You have such an interesting uh, background. Um, you want to just give, give a little bit of background, introduce yourself, how you got interested in computers and machine learning? Sure, that sounds good. So uh, my background, I did geophysics and applied math when I was in school. Um, uh, that was uh, kind of the, the focus of my career. I think when I was younger, I wanted to be like some sort of lady Carl Sagan, um, like focused on planetary science and, and sort of being able to, to explain um, these complicated technical topics uh, to the world. Um, I got into computers very early. Um, I, I grew up in, in quite a small town um, and uh, my, uh, my family kind of rescued an Apple II um, from being thrown away. And that was, that was how I first learned how to program. Um, and then I really, I, I think this, uh, this time in particular is, is kind of what I've been waiting my entire career for. You know, I've been doing machine learning for a bit over a decade. Um, and previously, you know, you would have to go through all of this pain to get the data, to, to build a model, to try to choose an algorithm, um, and then to, to do the, the really hard work of trying to get those models into production. Um, and even then, those models were just kind of single task models. And today, we have these highly capable, very general purpose models um, that are, uh, you know, doing an overwhelming number of things and, and really uh, we, we keep discovering new ways that they're useful based on based on the way that that uh, people are sort of testing them out and stress uh, stress testing their boundaries. Um, so it's been it's been really exhilarating, honestly, like uh, it's I, I would never have imagined that this would happen back when I started doing machine learning in like 2009, 2010. So back in uh, 2009, 2010, what, what were the types of machine learning problems that, that you were working on? Oh, Lord. So, uh, so back then, um, I, I was fortunate enough to do, um, I got some NSF uh, kind of grants to, to, do, to do planetary sciences research, um, both at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics in Boulder, as well as at Southwest Research Institute. Um, and most of the machine learning there was just uh, kind of fancy statistics, right? So you were doing um, linear regression, logistic regression. You might be doing, um, you know, decision trees or or support vector machines. Um, but but really, it was it was just taking um, this very tabular data and attempting to make sense out of it. Um, and it was useful, like very very useful. Um, and and you know, capable of of driving many interesting scientific advances. Um, but but nothing like what we have today, and uh, and also uh, using sometimes like uh, very um, uh, I, I would say like very niche tools. So there was um, in the space sciences, there's something called IDL. Um, there's also I remember many um, many sleepless nights uh, attempting to wrangle MATLAB uh, into into doing what I needed it to do. Um, whereas Python always seemed to make much more sense. Um, so uh, so just, uh, again, like a, a sort of an explosion and a revolution in terms of, you know, the kinds of models that we can build now and then also the the tools that are available to help build those models. Yeah. I love MATLAB. 
<laughs> by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yep. Um, a lot of my undergrad work, I, I use MATLAB. And one of my first yep. like big machine learning projects, I inherited the project and a lot of it was in MATLAB. So I, I started out uh, doing a lot of work there. I, I, think it's, yep. I think it's great. People don't talk about it enough. Python is kind of eaten it up like a lot of other things, but I, I love MATLAB. Yeah, I love, uh, I, one of my professors always used to say that it doesn't really matter what tool you're using. It doesn't matter if it's Python, a spreadsheet, MATLAB, SPSS, data, or R, like whatever, whatever it happens to be. Um, if uh, the important thing is that, you know, you're asking an interesting question and you're being thoughtful about analyzing data. Um, and the tool is just kind of something that gets you to the answer. It shouldn't be the answer itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. That that's that's for sure. Um, yeah, I remember I did some yeah very interesting work with SPSS as well. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's not it's not the tool really. It's understanding the problem, understanding that like, do you even have the right data to start approaching yep. this problem? So yeah, so I guess at face value, you know, people might not understand. So you're in geophysics. You know how how did you become the you know lead product uh, for generative, you know, generative models at, at, at Google DeepMind. But I mean, it makes sense, right? There's so much dealing with so much data um, and a lot of the, um, I guess a lot of the lessons that you learn with how to, you know, handle all of that kind of data apply. But if, if you want, if you want to speak to that. Absolutely. So one of the, one of the cool things about geophysics is that uh, geophysicists have been using GPUs for a long time. Um, and, and they've also been uh, kind of the, the flavor of earth scientists that, that are more likely to, to, um, to be delighted by computers as opposed to, you know, like running away from computers to the mountains. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, so like seismic data um, is, is very massive um, as well as, you know, well log data, kind of the, the interpretations of subsurface data um, and and all of um, all of this earth sciences, uh, all of this earth sciences data really needs heavy kind of computational horsepower in order to analyze it. So even before deep learning was a thing, um, earth scientists were already uh, building uh, building models and, and sort of attempting to analyze these patterns in the subsurface and in seismic using GPUs. Um, and that's uh, that's something that I, I don't know if many people know, but I but I actually um, like had started experimenting with CUDA uh, not just for uh, not for deep learning, but because of earth sciences problems and and like quantitative hydrogeology and and also understanding like um, kind of fluid dynamics problems. That's yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I guess having that experience with CUDA and yeah, dealing with that type of data, understanding how to process it, um, set you up probably pretty well for your role with TensorFlow. Um, I know that you um, played a pivotal role in, um, you know, like the development of that. C can, can you speak to uh, some of your work with TensorFlow? I don't know if it was a pivotal role in the development of TensorFlow, oh. but I certainly was delighted. Uh, so, so TensorFlow was I I've been experimenting with kind of open source machine learning tools for for a long time. I think I mentioned before, like Python always seemed like always seemed to make more sense than MATLAB. Um, and there was uh, there's kind of a, a really nice Python data science ecosystem. You know, SciPy, NumPy, Matplotlib. Um, uh, Scikit-learn, like all of all of all of those great things, um, but then TensorFlow came out and was open sourced in late 2015, um, and and it was kind of revolutionary in a few ways. You know, it was it had some documentation, and it had some examples that you could use. Um, I think all of those deep dream images went viral over the internet. Um, but it was also in Python. And even though it was like a really kind of janky, weird sort of Python that you had to like construct graphs uh, to use it, um, it was still something that um, felt a little bit more approachable than, than maybe some of the other deep learning frameworks that were implemented in, you know, like C++ or, or Lua or, or whatever they might have been. Um, so. So that uh, I, I got very excited about it. Started um, started learning how to use it, trying it for my projects, 
um, my first deep learning project was uh, was applied to the earth sciences. So understanding how to um, categorize different shapes um, uh, of atolls and reefs, um, and uh, and just being overwhelmed at how you know something would have taken a, a poor grad student you know like six months to do, and then suddenly this was able to blast through it in just five minutes with a with a really modest amount of training data. Um, and but I started contributing. Um, uh, eventually, the the TensorFlow team kind of took notice, um, and and I I got to to join them and to to work at at Google Brain, um, and uh, and in addition to to getting to work with the TensorFlow team, um, the JAX team, uh, which is also um, it's an open source numerical library for for doing um, you know deep learning in addition to many other things, especially in the sciences. Um, I got to work with them quite closely, and then all of our machine learning frameworks teams at Alphabet. So, so it's uh, like I said, it's it's very exhilarating, um, and it's been it's been really interesting to see how the space has evolved over the course of the of the last many years. Yeah. Um, so fast forwarding, you know, to to today and some of your um, more recent projects. Um, with all the things that are happening with these large language models. Um, can you speak to um, you know the work that you've been doing with applying large language models to different software development tasks? Absolutely. So um, I'm a, I guess, and this is also a, a nice segue. So I'm a I'm a boomerang back to Alphabet. Um, during the pandemic, I spent a little bit over a year at uh, at Microsoft, specifically GitHub, um, helping with you know, introducing machine learning features into VS Code, um, GPUs and code spaces, and then also, of course, Copilot. Um, and so the, I think the, the potential for generative models um, in the software development space is huge. You know, historically, single task models for, uh, you know, things like doc string generation or single task models for code generation or for code completions. Um, single task models for for build repair or for helping resolve or identify errors, and now we're seeing models do all of these things and even more um, with just a with just a single a singular model. Um, one of the one of the coolest things about the announcements that we had at I/O um, this past week is that they're they're all using um, kind of our, our latest large language model. The the technical paper is out. I encourage everyone to read it. Um, we also have a website at g.co slash palm2. Um, but this model, uh, based on kind of the way that it was trained in it and the, the input data, um, it's capable of doing um, a broad variety of software development tasks. And it's supporting code generation, code explanation, error explanation, error fixing um, across so many Alphabet products. So both our tools within um, Google Cloud, the, the product is called Duet, um, as well as all of those features within Google Colab, which is, um, if folks aren't familiar, it's kind of a data science notebook environment um, that, that's ready to use and that you can uh, kind of have handy in your Google Drive instance, as well as, um, as, well as Android Studio, as well as code features in BARD, um, but it's all powered by the same model. Um, and uh, and it's it's been really energizing to see how people have been testing it out and using it, um, and then also the the features that we have coming down the pipe. So things like um, you know self healing code, and then also um, things like tool use. So being able to um, you know be being able to access a Python interpreter with code. Yeah, so I I'm familiar with a lot of those tools. I think I was an early adopter for Google Colab. Um, I've, awesome. Yeah, I've loved it for so long. The ability to have free access to GPUs. You know, in the past it was a little bit longer access. Now it's a little bit less, but that's okay. Um, yeah. Just being able to, you know, any practitioner getting access to a GPU is just like, yeah, it can. It just changes your iteration speed, and you can kind of kind of work so much faster for the other things um i don't know why but i was a more of a late adopter for copilot um i got it like within the last month it's like embarrassing to say um <laughs> but that's when um 
I finally got around to trying it. I don't know. I was hesitant. I just thought, oh, you know, maybe it's going to introduce co uh, bugs or something like that. Or maybe it was like my pride or something. Like I wanted <laughs> to just continue to, um, you know, be, be coding on my own. But I, I started to I started to use ChatGPT. I started to use Bard to help me with, cer with certain things. Um, I mean, it's not like I wasn't finding myself on Stack Overflow like every other programmer, you know, looking looking at yeah. things. Um, but yeah, it's incredible. Um, I think that the the sh paradigm shift that's taking place, I mean, with machine learning in general, but for generating code, it's like what it used to be is you used to write a function and then you would, you know, struggle to write your documentation or your comments and things. Now with um, this new technology to do, you know, code generation, you're writing what you want the code to do, and then it's making it's making these suggestions for what the code should be, and like multiple lines also, which is really cool. And it's like the next, it's not just like trying to auto complete. It's it's very smart. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, 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 at least it, you know it appears to be very smart. Um, one of the questions that I have is. So yeah, there's like a lot of code out there, right? Like, mm -hmm. just like there's a lot of information out there. Um, GitHub um, is is filled with so with so many libraries, but you know, not all of it is battle tested. Not all of it is you know peer reviewed. Peer you know code goes through code review, so it might not all be the highest uh, quality or. You know, it's from, I mean, the, the way that things are moving these days, like it's just from like a year ago or two years ago, and it's using like a different um, version of a library that has a different dependency or, you know, whatever the actual specific is. But I guess, how do you mitigate those sorts of problems? I know this is like a loaded question, but how, how do you mitigate those sorts of problems where you might be training on data that's either not the highest quality or sort of like out of out of date? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so we have a collection of uh, sort of fine-tuned versions of our large models um, for internal use only. Um, so, so kind of supporting the software engineers within Google who are building the the software that powers all of the Alphabet products. Um, and these fine-tuned models are fine-tuned on Google three internal source code. Um, which is, uh, you know, many, many tokens of, of super high quality peer reviewed data um, that, uh, you know, is, is the equivalent of an L5 SWE or more. Um, and that, that moves the needle quite a bit in terms of making sure that the recommendations that we're giving, the explanations that we're giving are, are, pretty, are, are pretty solid. Um, for, uh, for the the GitHub code, I can certainly attest, like there's a lot of very low quality code on GitHub. A lot of it doesn't run. A lot of it is using dated APIs or, or maybe had this very low process of somebody just like push committed it to the repo um, without, uh, without going through any, you know, evaluation from a peer. Um, and so, so I think that uh, if you are building these kinds of models externally, um, there's a lot of work that needs to go into kind of carefully curating and cleaning the GitHub data sets in order to make it solid for, for use. And I, I, if people are curious about this topic, I strongly, strongly recommend taking a look. There's a recent paper from um, the Hugging Face and ServiceNow team called StarCoder. Um, and they go through uh, kind of with their big code data set, like all of the all of the things that they needed to do in order to get a higher quality data set to train. Um, and it includes things like deduplication. Um, you know, they think they they also were considering preferentially weighting code that is newer or code that comes from from repos that follow software engineering best practices, um, as opposed to code that might be from like a Python 101 student. Um, and uh, and all of those kind of careful bits of attention to to the the pre-training data set move the needle significantly in terms of model performance down the line. Um, but but those things there are also other tricks that you can do like retrieval techniques um, or uh, you know being able to do these these kind of self-healing operations where you recursively apply the model to the output code to see if it would actually run and then like fixing anything that might be wrong um, or spotting any security vulnerabilities if, if there are any in the output code. 
Um, but, uh, but it's certainly like an ongoing field of research in order to understand what, what the best options might be. Um, right. Um, so yeah, so I guess designing, um, you know, I don't know what to call it, I guess systems that help, uh, software engineers, um, or machine learning practitioners, you know, sort of do their job, um, generate code, test code, um, help you write documentation, do all these things. Um, I guess other than, you know, dealing with, you know, maybe um, outdated code or the things that we were just talking about, are there any other challenges um, that you face when trying to design those systems? Oh, absolutely. Like it's, uh, and, and I'm sure I, I'm going to list a few, but there, but there are many more. And, and I think, um, you know, people are, people are discovering even more every day. Um, so one is um, likelihood of reciting code. Right, like the uh, like, there's something that we've implemented for Bard, where if you generate code and a portion of it is verbatim identical to something that might be within a GitHub repo, um, we point you towards the GitHub repo and then also tell you what license it was under. So whether it was Apache two or MIT, which are very permissive, versus GPL, which is not permissive at all and is something that you would probably you know you would not certainly want to use for your business. Um, I, I think there are also, you know, questions about security vulnerabilities and performance. Um, so if you generate code, ideally you would want it to be efficient. Um, you wouldn't want it to, to be something that would take, you know, 10 or 100 times longer or more compute in order to execute. Um, and you would also hopefully want the, um, the code that you generate to be consistent in terms of like syntax and conventions with the code in your existing code bases. Um, right. So all of these things, if all of these things are, are considerations that, that folks have to think about when, you know, implementing tools for their, for their own users. Um, and, and it's something that, that we certainly think very deeply about um, when, when, you know, orchestrating ML applied to software systems internally at Alphabet. Right. Um, so for BARD, this week, you guys announced that the underlying model, uh, I guess, was upgraded or, you know, from, from POM 1 to POM 2. Um, what is it you think about POM 2 that makes it like a better base model? Is it more data? Is it, you know, or, for, you know, whatever, whatever you can speak to about it? Um, that's that's a great question. So the the model that we upgraded from, it wasn't actually POM V1 and oh. POM V1 um was uh was a, a very very large model that um that I, I there's a paper about it so folks can go read if they're curious um but it was um it was not uh, ever used in production for for alphabet i don't believe um but the 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 first model for bard was um was a version of our lambda model um, the, the model that we have upgraded to is, is a version of Palm V2, um, which, uh, which was announced on Wednesday. Um, and some of the, the capabilities of it are that it's much, much better at code, at math, at reasoning. Um, it's also much better at, at multilingual tasks. So Palm V2 was trained on over 100 spoken word languages, um, you know, dozens and dozens of computer programming languages. And as a result of that, that really robust and, and very diverse pre-training data mixture, it can do things like translate from one language to another. It can explain um, idioms and riddles. Um, uh, even in different languages, it can translate from one programming language to another. It can tell you um, if code might be vulnerable or if it needs performance fixes. It can generate code. It can explain code. Um, it can uh do uh you know it can it can write mathematical proofs like it, it's just lots and lots of different things we're discovering new uses for it every day um and uh and one of the other uh sort of most compelling features about this palm 2 family of models is that um, it comes in a broad variety of sizes so everything from um you know our smallest version which can fit directly on a mobile device um, to uh, to more modest sized versions, 
um, that are still, you know, despite being an order of magnitude or more uh, tinier than the largest version, still preserving all of the capabilities and uh, and doing it um, uh, just faster, more efficient, and and cheaper. Right. So, so yeah. So it's it's definitely from a business perspective, the Palm V two family makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, just to dig into the idea, because this is something that you see across a lot of large language models, you know, you see Llama that has like four maybe different sizes as, um, and obviously like um, Palm as well. So the reason for like the different sizes, the different number of parameters, is it just to deal with like the different trade-offs of where you're running the model, what your trade-off is for latency and performance? Is there anything else that goes into it? That's uh, that's very very that's a great synopsis. So so the um, the smaller versions of the models make it easier to serve in a broad variety of locations. It also um, you know makes them much much quicker at inference. Um, and then uh, the the kinds of capabilities that we've been seeing from these smaller models that were open sourced is you can have very, very modest sized models. And as long as you fine tune or instruction tune on very high quality data sets, you're capable of getting the exact same performance that you would from a much larger model, despite it being you know faster, cheaper, easier to deploy. Um, and I, I personally, I think that's the most interesting field of research right now is is trying to take these these highly capable models um, and make make them uh, you know more accessible for for people all over the world even if you know the only device that they have to work with is a mobile device yeah that's something that I'm also really interested in um, yeah. you know training like teacher student models and distilling um, you know information from these large language models to get them to be stored into us, you know, smaller systems because it, yeah, it really depends on your use case. You know, sometimes there's just something really nice about being able to run it on your laptop and a lot, I mean, almost all of these models that it's just like, it's not even possible. You know, you have to access it through an API or you have to access it, um, you know, through the interface that the company offers it. But yeah, I, I think that there's something really nice, like even I mean, I'm doing some of my work, like I'm trying to get things that are like 400 megs down to 40 megs, you know, just because yeah. it, it gives you the ability to like run, you know, maybe five or 10 times the amount of things in, in, in a much faster, in a like a much faster iteration time. Um, so there's been some like dropping of some ideas about um, the new release, the new model that I believe it's DeepMind um, with Gemini. Um, yes. What can you tell us uh, about Gemini? So I, uh, uh, many of the people from the Palm V2 team are on the Gemini project, including myself, um, and we're still actively training the model. Um, it's intended to be Alphabet's, uh, you know, most most compelling model, um, which which kind of tracks with, uh, you know, every time every time we build a model, we we hope that it, you know, as uh, is a superset of the capabilities of the models that preceded it. Um, but Gemini is very special in that it was built from kind of the ground up to be multimodal. Um, so we're already seeing multimodal features in the in the first versions of the of the model that we've trained. Um, and we're anticipating that it will be in production very quickly, or at least the smaller versions of it will be in production quite quickly. Um, but I, I guess the the only thing that I can say um, specifically is is stay tuned. Um, we're very excited. It's the first model that Google DeepMind is trained kind of jointly together, um, and it should be uh, it should be particularly compelling for not just the text and the code use cases, but also the multimodal use cases. Yeah, that's that's very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. Um, in regards to multimodal, um, what multimodal use cases are, are you most excited for? Yeah, so um, so multimodal, I, I love this idea that you can have, you know, audio, video, images, text, code as inputs, um, including um, like many of them kind of being interspersed together. 
um, and then you know kind of define what your output should be either uh, by you know you might get some text as output from your original model and then you stack a diffusion model on top such that you can generate an image back out or you can generate um, you know audio or video um, but some of the use cases that I'm most excited about for, for multimodal models is that you can imagine, um, say you're taking a physics course and you know you, you just can't nail a concept. Like you, you just, uh, for whatever reason, like angular velocity just isn't clicking. Um, and you could easily just ask, uh, you know, like, hey, um, I, I really, what I would love to have is uh you know like like a video that explains angular velocity to me um and i and i really want it to just have like cats and then i also want you to have like a quiz to check my comprehension every like one minute of the video i don't want this video to be longer than four minutes um, and then I also want to have like an outline at the end that, that explains what the concepts were in the video also with images. Um, and that's something that a multimodal model would be able to support. Um, so so just, just being able to do something like that is huge. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it also brings about this world of, you know, super, super tailored um, custom uh, custom materials for folks. Like you could imagine each kid gets a new bedtime story every night um, that's complete with, um, you know, a new story, new adventure, and new images. It's like the, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever read The Diamond Age by, by Neil Stevenson, but it's, but it's like having the primer just kind of like available for every person. Right. Um, and that's, that's really energizing. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that that's such a cool use case because, yeah, everyone everyone's unique. Everyone learns in their own in their own way. Um, people respond to different mediums, you know, differently. Um, so being able to tailor the learning approach, that yeah, that could change. That can really change the way that we learn, the way that we interact, yeah. the way that we interact with uh, the different, you know. Material that we're trying to learn. That, that's 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 really cool. Um, yeah, I saw I saw a tweet the other day that um, that someone with the with the learning disability they didn't share what their their learning disability was, but they mentioned that interacting with these generative models has sort of um, you know made it that their that their learning disability isn't hindering their life as much anymore. Right. You know, they're, they're able to, uh, you know, instead of having to attempt to digest all of this content, even though it's not architected in a way that is, that's optimal for the, for their learning style, um, they're capable of working with generative models to, to consume the information in a different way and it, and it clicks and it's the first time in their life that they had said that it felt like that. Um, yeah. And that's, that's huge, right? Like, like being able to, being able to, uh, you know, unlock the joy of learning for people who had previously been frustrating. That's, that's opening up the world to so many more creators and so many more potential engineers and, and folks that, um, you know, can contribute. Yeah, absolutely. That's so rewarding. It's, it's so nice to hear, you know, especially now with all of the people that are sort of bringing up all of these negative potential future use cases for, for AI, but to know that there are all of these use cases where it can help le level the playing field, you know, in, yeah. in, in some ways and open up opportunities for people, you know, th things are, things are changing, things are changing rapidly. Um, yeah. And machine learning does have this tendency to perpetuate a lot of the things from the past. Um, but it, it's, it's nice to know that there are times when it can actually increase accessibility. Um, so that's, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice, uh, that's a nice use case. Yeah. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite stories from the co-pilot days were, um, somebody usually on GitHub, when somebody files an issue, it's like not a fun thing. You know, it's like, man, this is broken or like this is, I can, I'm confused or whatever. Um, but there was one person whenever we had first released Copilot who wrote and said, you know, like I have, um, I have tremors, like, and they've gotten so bad 
recently that, you know, I, uh, I was forced to, you know, stop doing my job and this person had been a software engineer. Um, and they said, you know, you, you've introduced this kind of like speech, uh, speech to code, basically, um, generation features within the IDE. And, you know, it's made it so that I can actually build software again. And I never thought that I would be able to do that. And that is also, you know, not like that's, that's the kind of thing that, that makes you delighted to come to work every day, I think is, you know, the, the potential of, of making it so that people can, can do the things that they love, even though they might be physically limited in some way. Right. Yeah. Knowing that they're, you're having a positive impact on that person. I mean, who knows, there's probably many other people that are also, you know, getting that, um, yeah. that positive impact. So yeah, that, that it's definitely delightful. It's rewarding to hear, you know, working, working in this field. Um, Thanks for geeking out with me, uh, talking about yep. uh, large language models and all of that. But I want to switch and zoom out into just the machine learning field in general. Um, yep. So, what do you what do you believe is an important question um, that remains unanswered uh, in machine learning? There's so many, like, <laughs> and and I think the one of the questions that I'm most interested in is how do um, kind of the pre-training data mixtures for, for large language models, how do they impact performance on downstream tasks? And this is an unsolved problem. There's this notion of like, oh, well, I wanna do code stuff. So like, perhaps I should have more code um, or I wanna do multilingual stuff. So perhaps I should have more multilingual data, um, but nobody knows how much Nobody knows how much quality impacts that performance for uh, for data. Nobody knows like how the data should be structured or formatted, or if it should be included in a broad variety of ways. Like if you if you want to predict edits, perhaps you should have like code dips, right? Like instead of uh, instead of just the source code itself. Um, so um, all of this experimentation ends up being pretty expensive. Right, like, and people people end up taking like really expensive risks. So, so for Palm V two as an example, um, the the input pre training data mixture included an awful lot of multilingual tokens, which meant that the the number of English tokens was much low was much lower, and there was a risk from the team that like you know perhaps we'll train this model this like super expensive like millions of dollars a model. Um, and then we'll, we'll get something and it won't be as good at English tasks as it is on all of these other things. Right. Um, and, uh, and that was a risk that the team took and, you know, it, it ended up paying off because, you know, the performance ended up being better actually across, across all of the task ranges. Um, but that's, that could have been, you know, something that, that turned out very differently. And and I think uh, for for people who are who are interested in the large language model space and the deep learning space, understanding how the data choices that you make and then also the quality of the data that you make impacts um, how your model uh, performs is is really really compelling and important. And then also how does how does that like the pre-training um, phase. Um, and the attention that you pay in pre-training, um, how is that uh, is how is that compared to like downstream fine-tuning and instruction tuning? Because we're increasingly seeing that the fine-tuning, instruction tuning, RLHF portions are much more impactful and move the needle much much more than than everything else. Right. What What's your intuition on that? Um, why do you think it has such a such a big effect? So I think it's because it, it helps the model focus, um, which is uh, which is a not a technical way to describe it at all. But I think it's intuitively maybe a little bit easier to understand, right? Like the the model, you know, you initially train it on a lot of data, like the entire internet, right? Like or or close, like a lot of data, um, uh, and so it's so it's capable of doing a broad variety of things. 
whenever you instruction tune it or fine tune it or RLHF it, you help it kind of focus on, on the kinds of questions that you're really interested in answering or the kind of format that you would really, really like to see. Like say, um, you know, your model is giving relatively short outputs um, uh, and you want them to be a little bit more long form. Um, you can you can kind of tune that with RLHF such that um, your model uh, uh, your model is kind of rewarded whenever it outputs longer context things um, as opposed to shorter things. Um, right. Cool. Right. So yeah. you can kind of tune it um, to how you want how you want those outputs to be. Yep. Um, one of the things that you mentioned before it made me think about like. Well, two things, I guess how there are these different waves that have happened, I, I, I view in, in machine learning, like I think there was a time a couple of years ago where it was like, you need to have a fine tuned model on this task, right? And now with all of the advances in generative uh, models, it's like, oh, there's, you know, there, maybe there's one model that can kind of answer, you know, all, all of these questions. But there still is this question about, um, you know, can we use that generative model to then point you in the right direction of the best tool, to, you know, to, to use to, to, to solve your problem? Um, I guess, what, what, what's your take? What's your take on that? And, and how have you viewed that sort of that sort of transition between having a generative model that can kind of solve many problems versus fine tuned models that are for specific tasks? Yeah. So we found just just anecdotally the um, so so initially for for some of our our large models um, that perhaps weren't pre trained on as much source code um, we did have to have fine tuned versions of those models using source code and then for future iterations of the of the larger models we included all of the tokens that we had used during the fine tuning process within the pre-training data mixture and the resulting model um, exceeded the performance of the fine-tuned model um, based on based on those kinds of inclusions and then also using uh, using a tokenizer that was a little bit friendlier for code so so practically we've we've seen that um that the the generative models provided you keep you know adding in high quality pre-training data they they can sort of absorb the the tasks from the fine-tuned models um but I, but i also will say that you know for businesses um like whatever solves your problem like that's that's the thing that you should use and you know lord knows the the world is like running on excel spreadsheets for much of the finance sector um and the government is running on cobol and <laughs> like the the cost of migrating off of either of those things is just overwhelming and i don't want to be the one causing like the the financial downturn of like telling the finance community that they shouldn't be using excel spreadsheets or or basic or whatever it is um, so, so, uh, I, uh, like, I would, I would say that whatever modeling, like, meets your needs is, is what you should use. And, you know, certainly experiment with generative models, see if it makes sense. Um, and then also see if it makes financial sense. Cause if you, if you can get by with a smaller model that perhaps is open source and easier to maintain, um, then why should you be paying, you know, for API calls? Um, and, but that's, that's personal opinion, you know, like new technology is always, is always going to be very cool and push boundaries. But, um, at the end of the day, what matters is your, your business, your users and their problems. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree a hundred percent identifying the problem, the underlying need, knowing, you know, that there's many approaches. Um, I, I, I view that generative models um are you know one tool in your tool in your tool set it, it you don't necessarily need to you know need to use it for, for everything it has a lot of amazing use cases but yeah um certain business practices like you like you were mentioning are i'll say stuck in there you know stuck in their certain yeah. ways and we're 
moving towards this new future, but everyone's not ready for the leap over, you know, the can the canyon i don't know there's there's a place there's a there's a space and you know we have to get people you know we have to get people over and some people will take smaller steps um smaller steps than others yep and there's also like some some appetite for risk i think you have to have if you're preferring generative models just just given that we're still we're still exploring factuality and, and being able to verify that that models are returning correct responses because a lot of the time they don't like they're they're always um you know examples towards uh you know like counterfactuals but the one one thing that i saw on twitter um earlier this week because uh, all of these generative models things seem to be percolating to twitter um the but but someone instead of like consulting with a financial analyst they were like i have some money and i want to invest it in some stocks like recommend some stocks that i should buy um and they got chad gpt to do that um and then they they purchased the stock they kind of uh mapped it out over time as to what would have happened if they followed the the portfolio um recommendation versus the the you know buy some stock recommendation um and the the chat gpt recommended stock purchases um or the the you know generative model recommended stock purchases actually ended up doing quite quite well compared to the the kind of investment portfolio recommendations but all i could think was just like i don't want my 401k to be at the mercy of a generative model at least not now like yeah. it's you know and it and it might be that you know perhaps these these investment strategists are recommending certain things because they know that it's it's more stable than you know perhaps these these stocks that might be in the near term uh high performers but long term like much more uh much more variable in terms of in terms of return right so it's yeah it's like choose your own adventure and be very careful yeah um, for for you know putting betting all of your money on generative models yeah i mean yeah in terms of financial decisions i think yeah everyone's sort of like how much risk are you willing to take and then there should be like another step like are you willing to take the risk of using a generative model for your financial portfolio yeah. maybe some people will say yes who knows um yeah. okay so switching into like uh learning from machine learning um, standpoint and just sort of um, general advice um, for people in the in the industry. Uh, well, I'll start with this one. Um, who are some people in the machine learning field that that influence you? So there have been so many. I think I and I'm fortunate to work with many of them every day. Um, so, so I've been, uh, you know, coming from kind of the, the open source tools, developer tools space, I've really loved working with the JAX team. Um, so JAX is for folks you might not know, it's a, uh, it's an open source library for, for doing, um, kind of building deep learning models, but also, uh, doing kind of scientific, uh, scientific experimentation. Um, and all of the models that we build at Alphabet are built using JAX. Um, uh, Matt Johnson, uh, Peter Hawkins, uh, James Bradbury, like they are all uh, Sky Wonderman Milne. They're all very, very close collaborators. Roy Frostig as well, um, Yash Kataria. Uh, and they've, they've been delightful to work with and to learn from. Um, I've, also, um, I've also really, really loved Working, um, working with uh, with Jeff Dean as well as um, the the collaborators at DeepMind. Um, so, so as part of this Gemini effort, I've gotten to work um, more closely with uh, with Oriol Benyels, who's kind of driving driving much of the efforts. Um, and then also, of course, the the learning for code folks, um, you know, who are who care very deeply about. Um, kind of machine learning as applied to software systems and think very carefully and thoughtfully about it. Um, and if you're if you're on Twitter, I would also highly recommend following the Hugging Face team. 
um, because they, you know, have a lot of passion around open source machine learning and deep learning and sharing their knowledge, as well as Andre Karpathy, yeah. um, who is uh, like a dear sweet human just generally, but also also cares a lot about education and advocacy and, and making sure that these concepts are understandable to, to everyday humans. Um, so, so there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people that, uh, a lot of people to admire in this community. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's so many great people in the field and people are, you know, ge pretty generous with their time also. And yeah. there's this sense of, you know, wanting to help, help other people out. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really nice community to be in the machine learning community. Yeah. Um, on your website, which is um, nicely named dynamic web web page, right? Is that or oh, so uh, so my website, I I have a tendency to purchase uh, URLs that are puns. Okay. Um, I, and and I think I think probably most of us in this industry are like URL hoarders. Um, but uh, but the one that that might that might have. Um, kind of I, I think the url might have even expired but page views uh okay. is the is the one yep okay so yep. under a section that i saw on one of your websites it was under page views you had some really mm -hmm. interesting um tenants i'm gonna read them if you don't mind yep. um yep. so bring bring data to opinion fights um relentlessly ask questions communication is everything especially in open source Choose growth opportunities. Nurture and build communities. If you don't have documentation, you don't have an MVP. Yeah. Give without expecting a return and believe in people, not acronyms. I love yeah. these. I love them so much. Um, Thank you. Are there any that you, is there anything that you would add to any of them or anything that you want to talk about with any of those? So, so those, uh, those I, I think I, I put down on paper about half a decade ago and they and they still seem like pretty good life rules um i i think now especially um the believe in people not acronyms uh one is is going to become even more compelling and important so so covid kind of turned everything on its head right like i i personally like it it helped prioritize things for me it was part of the reason why i left alphabet like i wanted to move back to texas to take care of my parents they're um you know like 70 plus 80 plus um and the uh, and and i think a lot of other people also it helped them prioritize what what they should be spending their time on. So we saw a lot of kids, you know, choose not to go to college and to perhaps enter into the workforce or to perhaps like start building software or to build their own businesses. Right. And these kids are incredible. Like they're doing such amazing things like the the most killer use cases for generative models are all these kids that are like entrepreneurs and somehow like 16 years old. Right. Like, and so, so I feel like, um, the, and then also in the, in the deep learning community, we're increasingly seeing that, that folks aren't really publishing papers anymore. Right. Like they, right. whereas previously there was this academic ivory tower of like, oh, you, you do some research, you produce a paper, you present to the conference, and then you add it to like this extensive scholarly pedigree. Um, whereas now it's just kind of like, well, I did some work. I produced something that people can test out. I will perhaps write a blog post, but for the most part, it's just like something cool that's out in the world that people can like see and touch and, and experience. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, if you're, if, if you don't have a college degree, if you are debating whether or not college is right for you. Um, if you're concerned that like perhaps not having a degree will will limit you in some way, whether it's an undergrad degree or a graduate degree, or if you have like a journalism degree and you're like, but can I, but can I do deep work? You can, uh, uh, there are no rules in this space. Like, you know, you can do anything that you would like to. Um, and the important part is just kind of focus on building something, building something great that delights you and that delights other people. 
um, and that's all that really matters. So that's really good advice I th for people starting out in the field. Um, a little other, another variation of that. It, when you were just kind of getting your f feet under you, or I mean, I don't know if that is even the case, but what advice would you give yourself uh, when you were starting your career uh, in data science? So I would, I would say, um, I would just kind of reinforce, do what you think is right and what interests you, and then don't feel, give your permission, give yourself permission to do that. And don't um, feel guilty or like you aren't, uh, like you aren't, uh, you know, meeting up to the expectations of, of your peers or, or your academic advisors. Um, I was told when when I had entered into my graduate program, I was told that it was a waste of time to do like computer science and programming, that I would never be respected if all I did was like build tools or build libraries or, um, you know, write code to solve science problems. Um, and I was also told that machine learning would never have a place in the earth sciences, um, which which was, uh, uh, like in, in hindsight, um, you know, kind of silly, but at the time I was just like, am I making the worst career choice of my entire life? Like, um, and I had a lot of internal emotional angst about it, um, back then, but, uh, but now it, it's, it's definitely the right choice. Like if you, um, if you feel like something is important, um like sometimes you can see sometimes you can see the future even if other people are are you know standing standing facing a different direction um that's that's great yeah it's so interesting right when you're in the moment things can seem so chaotic and there could be so much uncertainty and then you know i stop myself like the things that you're saying that they're, they're like looking at things now it's like some of that's like laughable you know like you know you see you look now and i mean hindsight's twenty twenty, of course but it's just i mean machine learning has become so pervasive um and you know using all of these sorts of techniques and technologies um but it, it's it's amazing how yeah in the moment it can be so uncertain but then when you look back it's it's it, it become it be, can become so clear yeah. Um, and that was just, that was just like eight or nine years ago, by the way, like that, that people were, were thinking that machine learning wouldn't have a place in the earth sciences, wouldn't have a place in the physical sciences. All of this is super new. Um, right. and, and so, so I think that given the trajectory and, and kind of the, the exponential increase and in, in how these things are progressing, um, it's really tricky to predict the future and there's. I forget who said it, but like, uh, and it's it's kind of cliche, I guess now. But the but the best way to predict the future is to be the one building it. Yeah. Like, it is very clear that the future is going to be built using you know the generative technologies and and assistive technologies and productivity enhancing technologies. So if you're if you're doing that, like you're probably going to be heading in towards the right direction. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of, you know, how fast things are changing and, you know, in the last decade, in the last five years, like um, even in the last year or week, <laughs> um, yeah. how do you how do you stay up um, on all of the you know newest techniques? I mean, I know in a way you're you know, you're part of it. You're you're building, you know, you're building the future. But there's so many people, you know, that are that are releasing stuff. Um, do you have any any techniques to sort of stay stay up on top of everything? I, it's a really tricky problem. I would, and again, this is going to sound silly. I would be on Twitter just because the machine learning community seems to hang out on Twitter, and they talk about things that they find interesting. It's like it's like getting to sneakily listen in to all of the hallway conversations and all of these AI research labs. And the, you know, increasingly we, we had mentioned it earlier, but, you know, people aren't writing papers anymore. Um, and so the, the best, 
the best insights that you can give into kind of pedagogy and kind of how how these models were built is by hearing what people are currently focused on. Like, is it long context? Is it, um, you know, this new tokenizer that seems interesting? Is it like some sort of algorithmic advance that people that people are really paying attention to? Is it like the data mixtures? Is it, you know, like some other model architecture? Um, but but kind of honing in on on where the conversation seems to be happening um is is really really important and right now if you're if you're just looking or attempting to look at every deep learning paper that's posted on archive your life's going to be insane like there was uh there was a website a while back i think it was created by andre carpathy um the archive sanity website and it would you know post the paper and then have like a really nice um kind of images for with pdfs um but but in the last you know three or four years, it's gotten overwhelming to keep up even with that. So, so I would, I would strongly encourage you, like pick people that work at the AI research labs that you care about, at, you know, uh, Anthropic, Google DeepMind, OpenAI, and, uh, you know, perhaps some of the others, um, like Hugging Face that I had mentioned, um, and follow them, see what they're talking about, see who else they're following. Um, and then also don't be afraid to ask questions if something isn't clear, because a lot of the time, if you ask a question to these people on Twitter, they will respond. And that's huge, right? Like, like being able to have access um, to, to some of the, the folks that are building the future is, is, is massive. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I didn't get to touch on, um, so yeah, obviously, machine learning, AI, generative models has really made it into the mainstream and it's created this like frenzied hype, you know, this, this, I, I, I'm wondering from, from your perspective, how, how do you view the gap between the hype and, and the reality um, of, of AI? Yeah. And this industry in particular, there are all these these hype cycles can be overwhelming. I personally cannot wait for the AI hype cycle to be over so that we can all have a little bit more peace to do the work. Um, I miss when AI was not cool because, because <laughs> like, and, and NeurIPS was a lot more fun then too. Like all of the academic conferences were much more chill. Now it feels like there's more VCs than researchers. Um, but the, uh, but, but I do think whenever you're trying to distinguish between who is like an AI influencer versus who is someone who does this for their day job, like definitely look and see where they work, look and see what they've built. Um, and if it's somebody that decided to get excited about AI just about the time that Web3 went downhill, um, because like somehow a lot of these web three influencers have turned into like generative AI influencers. And I don't know how that happened, but, but just kind of like, look at, look at the backlog, see, see what the person has accomplished and, and what they've been interested in. Um, and if they haven't been doing AI for, you know, longer than the last year or two, then, then I would, I would take what they say with a grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's um, really good advice. That's why it's really nice talking to somebody like you, <laughs> who has um, you know has experience at, at Microsoft and, and GitHub and Google and Alphabet and DeepMind and everything like that. Um, the last juicy, meaty question: um, What has a career in machine learning taught you about life? That is a wonderful question. I think what it has taught me the most is what to appreciate about being human. Like the more, the more you see what these models can do, um, you know, it's, it's very exciting and it, and it's very cool. And it's, you know, like un discovering new capabilities every single day, um, new ways in which I can automate myself uh and and sort of remove the the tedious parts of the day that i that i uh you know like creating meeting transcripts or or like automatically answering emails or like uh drafting a paragraph for, for a doc um or or something um 
but but also seeing the ways in which it in which it falls short like it it's not gonna it's not going to to um you know like it's not going to be able to give you a hug it's not going to um uh, sort of understand at least not yet it's not going to understand that you might have a bad day and you know you should uh, that it should ask you you know how are you doing um it's uh it's not going to um you know do those uh do those things that are you know uniquely nice experiences of interacting with humans in real life every day um and and i think that's that's important and i think one of the the nicest possible outcomes for generative ai becoming ingrained in every person's life is that um you know it helps us appreciate more what it is to to be a human and to interact with humans that's that's really nice um yeah that's beautiful so by exploring the capabilities of machine learning and ai you can really appreciate the human connection. Yep. So for folks that want to learn more about you or the work that you're doing, what, what would be a good resource uh, for them? Cool. So, so I strongly recommend taking a look at um, both the Google AI and the DeepMind websites, though they will probably be merging at some point uh, in the near future. Um, I'm also chronically available on Twitter, um, so twitter.com slash dynamic webpage, and I'm dynamic webpage pretty much everywhere else on the internet. Um, and then I also um, strongly, strongly encourage everyone uh, to, uh, you know, just kind of uh, get involved, you know, like there, there are certainly ways to, to begin learning more about the AI community without necessarily having to have a career in it. Um, and then if you if you do want to have a career in it, um, I think it's going to become increasingly possible as as businesses seem to be adopting AI um, at a at a much quicker rate these days. Um, so so don't be afraid to pitch to your boss like if you have an idea and you want to create a prototype. Absolutely. Um... Paige, it has been such a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for letting me pick pick your brain uh, for this time. Thank you so much. No, thank you. This has been delightful. I am so I am so glad to have to have gotten the chance to chat, and thank you for the awesome questions. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Cool, cool. Thank you for listening to this episode of Learning from Machine Learning with the remarkable Paige Bailey, the lead product manager for generative models at Google DeepMind. Her work is pushing the boundaries of innovation with Bard and the soon-to-be-released Gemini. Don't miss out on the valuable resources in the show notes. Please leave a review, share it with your friends, and let's create a community of continuous learning. Until next time, keep on learning.